Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby! Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast. Well, if you're a collector of anything, you'll want to listen carefully to our next guest. His name is Steve Resnick. The Babe Ruth of music collections. I'm telling you, he can make the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame blush. He's been in the music industry forever. Just to give you a taste of his uh, background. He's worked with groups from the days of the Three Dog Night and the Grassroots all the way to Steely Dan and Joe Walsh involved with A&M Records. And today helps run a group called Ramp, which is the Bible of the radio business. And, but Steve, it's great to have you on. Let's talk a little about your collection. This thing you have is unbelievable uh talk a little about what it consists of well in my home i'm lucky enough to have found a pretty big sized house here in southern california years ago when prices were low and uh, it's one of the only homes in all of southern california with a basement because you're not allowed to have basements in most of california because of earthquakes (laughs) correct the original owner was a contractor, and he illegally built three long 40-foot underground basements, which were absolutely perfect for me because collecting records, especially the vinyl records, you want them not to be in a place where it's uh, you know, 102 degrees in the summertime. If the air conditioning shouldn't be working, they will start melting. So I was lucky enough to have, a, have the basements that are always about 68 degrees. And they're long, and they house the quarter of a million songs that we have down there. It's unbelievable. It's, you call it the Steve Resnick Music Museum and Library. How did you get started with this? Because this didn't just happen in the last couple of years. You've been doing this since you were a kid. Yeah. I grew up in the uh, 50s, uh, and I remember living in Chicago, living in the Midwest. My sister and I would be in the back seat of our family's 51 Ford, and they'd be listening to Eddie Fisher and Perry Como and Doris Day and Tony Bennett and uh, Frank Sinatra, and it seemed like, now it, it wasn't, but it seemed like it went from one day to the next, overnight, to Jerry Lee Lewis and the Everly Brothers and Little Richard and Fast Domino and Elvis, and I just couldn't believe how great this new music was. Well, I lived in Chicago, but every summer... We spent up in Michigan. We had summer cottages. And so all throughout my first 14 years until we moved to California, I spent my summers not in Chicago, but in Michigan. And being on the lake and being that everything was on AM radio back then, we just wanted to hear more of this new thing called rock and roll back in 56, 57, the first two years. So my cousin and I would listen to the radio after the families went to sleep. We would turn our AM radio dial very slowly and pick up stations all over the north central area of the country. And every time we picked up a station, we would hear this new thing called rock and roll. We'd hear a song by, you know, the Drifters or the Platters or, uh, you know, Everly Brothers or Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, and we just couldn't believe how great the music was. And we just assumed 
that if a record was good, a station would play it. If a record was bad, a station wouldn't play it. At nine years old, we didn't know anything about demographics. We didn't know anything about what some underhanded people might do under the table and get records played. Uh, we didn't know anything about those things. And so, and obviously there's a 50 or 60 or 70 reasons why a radio station plays a record or doesn't play a record. We didn't know that. So in 57, there was a big, big song peaked at number four in the country, and it was called Come Go With Me by the Dell Vikings. Most people either know of it, and even if you're younger, and uh, it was Dumb Doobie, Dumb Doobie, Come and Go With Me, and it was a big, big record. Well, that was like the third record I ever bought. Six months later, summertime of 57, my cousin and I are turning the dial, looking for stations, and we found a station that played a song, and they said, here's the follow-up to Come Go With Me by the Dell Vikings, and they played a song called Whispering Bells. And my cousin and I both said, boy, that song's just as good as Come Go With Me, maybe better. We heard it a couple of days later, and then summer was over. He went back to Kalamazoo where he lived. I went back to Chicago where I lived. Four months later, all the families come in from different places for, for Thanksgiving, and we're sitting at the table. And he says, Steve, remember that song we heard uh, by the Dove Vikings, that um, Whispering Bells? I said, yeah. He said, when you went back to Chicago four months ago, did you ever hear it again? Dick Clark didn't play it. He says, yeah, nobody in Kalamazoo ever played it. I went to sleep, crying myself to sleep, saying, as long as I live, I'll never hear that song again. How many other great records am I never going to hear? Because radio won't play all the records. And I said, someday, when I get old and rich, and I got half of that going on, I won't tell you which half, <laughs> I'm going to collect every record I can. And the rest of the story was that I just got lucky. I was in the right place at the right time here in Southern California, and I became a record collector. And being that I was in the heart of the music business here, and I got a little famous for collecting, all the record companies and radio stations started taking care of me, and I became pretty good friends with Dick Clark, and he told people about me, and because they wanted to please Dick Clark, the stations would send me the records they didn't need, and I just collected and collected and collected until somehow I collected every song that ever charted in Billboard's Hot 100. From what year? When was the, was the first year then? November 17th of 55 was the first Billboard Top 100. And uh, two and a half years later, they combined that chart with a couple other charts and called it the Hot 100. And so from November 17th of 55 till today, I have every song that's ever charted in Billboard. And that includes things besides just pop music. You had rock, you had country, right? I mean, eventually, if it got any play in the country, it probably got on that list. Oh, ton, more records back then got played... Uh, country records got, uh, made it into the top uh, 100, but records still making the top 100 today. And if you look at the top 100 today, you'll see 10 or 15 songs every week uh, in that top 100 that are country. Uh, but back then, there used to be a little bit more because you had so many artists that crossed over, like the Everly Brothers, Johnny Cash. Uh, but there were other artists too, Leroy Van Dyke. I, a lot of names come to mind. But a lot of a lot of artists charted back then in the country world and crossed over to pop real big. You know. Patsy Cline was a big example there, you know, um, Marty Robbins, people like that. Right, right. Well, now, in addition to different types of music, you probably have to have different formats because you don't see 45s anymore. So what else do you have? I'll start with telling you that the, uh, the 45 was invented in 1949. And it was invented by RCA Records. And they thought that would be the big deal. Uh, before that, it was 78s. And the 45 that they created in, in 49 did not take off. And there were only three major companies. There was DECA, which is now Universal, Columbia, and RCA. 
Capital was getting kind of big, and there were some other labels, but there were three majors. Mm-hmm. And the other two majors, Columbia and Decca, said, screw you, we don't care about the 45, we're not going with it. And the record, the 45s were dying out, but by 53 or 54, maybe even 54 or 55, rock and roll was just starting with Bill Haley and Chuck Berry and a few others, and it wasn't quite on the board yet, but all of a sudden the 45s started taking off a little bit. And then RCA, because of that, decided to sell their, their records in a certain way. What they did was they offered you a 45 player, a little uh, seven-inch by seven-inch little box that you had to plug into the back of your TV for sound. Wow. So people started buying them. And then all of a sudden, it was the artist I mentioned before. In late 55, it was Chuck Berry, Elvis hit, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, and all the big acts of the time. And all of a sudden, rock and roll took off. And when it did, kids wanted 45s. And so Columbia and Decca said, oh, okay. And the 45 was big. So I have every song that charted in, from November of, of 55. And to answer your question... It was the 45 until the 80s, when all of a sudden there were some cassette singles, and by the late 80s, CD singles. Now, CDs came into effect with albums in about 82, but they didn't have CD singles really until later in the 80s. And then by 87 or so, record companies finally started sending out CD singles to radio stations. So in the 80s, I not only have the 45 still, but I have cassette singles and CD singles. And from 90 on, it's all CD singles until now I have also songs on digital. It's incredible. Now, do you have all the equipment there to play it? I mean, everything uh, from re- from record players? I mean, any reel-to-reels there, any of that stuff? Yeah, I, I have a couple of real, real, reel-to-reel players. I have um, U-Matic three-quarter-inch videos. Um, you know, the... The kind of the joke is is that the garbage truck never stops at my house anymore because I never throw anything away. <laughs> yeah, and so I have every machine. I even have car record player forty fives, two of them. Wow, um, oh, that's cool. Working, those, those, well, I don't, I don't think they're working. I have them displayed in my collection in my museum. Um, they might play actually, but um, but they play records. Kids had had those forty five players for their cars back in sixty five, sixty six. It only lasted about two years. It, it never caught on, but you played your records upside down. The needle was upside down, and wow. you put the record in upside down underneath the dash, underneath the radio, like by your right knee when you're driving, and you'd play records. Yeah, and would, would it skip and stuff? But was that a problem or, or not? I just can't even imagine. You know, I don't. I never had one. My cousin did, and I don't recall. I imagine they probably did skip a little bit. But if I'm if I remember correctly, they had the record, the, the needle, and the arm of the needle. So pressurized heavily on the record so that it wouldn't skip, but it ruined records. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Now, you know, uh, Steve, I used to collect baseball cards, but the one thing I wouldn't do, I mean, I played with my baseball because I looked at them all the time. Do you actually play with these things at all, or when you get these things, do you, like, put gloves on and move them to an area, or how does that work? Are you talking about the 45s? Well, all the stuff, like the 45s, everything you have there. I mean, do you... Is particularly the music. I mean, do you ever like pull one of those out and play them, or is it just something you know it's there and that's enough? I, I spent a little extra money getting a really beautiful needle uh, that that never will affect the record negatively, and I play them all the time. And when people come over, we always play them. When I give tours, uh, two or three times a month, and when people come over, I have songwriters and arrangers and artists, 
and friends and colleagues and people in the record business. I've had 27 record company presidents over over the years. I've had a lot of stars come over, like Mick Fleetwood came over twice, and Bill Medley from the Righteous Brothers a few times, and Diane Warren, the great songwriter, and yeah. Little Anthony, and I could I could name dozens and dozens and dozens of artists from the 60s and 70s and 80s uh, over the years. Um, there are some, some couple big names coming over in the next couple of weeks. I won't mention their name until after they come over, in case they cancel, but I've had lots of people, you know, for those who know oldies, I've had Jackie DeShannon. I've had yeah. uh, so many of those types of artists. The Diamonds have been over. The Four Preps have been over. It doesn't matter. I love to see what people's memories are of the of the, their history of rock and roll days. You know, yeah. what, the, what the first record they ever bought was, what the first concert they ever went to was, um, what artists might have changed their, their mind about listening to music. See, to me, this is much cooler than the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I like that, don't get me wrong, but this is much cooler. It's not this pretentiousness of which ones get in, which ones don't. This is all of it, you know, and you, and you can actually hear it. That's just incredible. Right. Well, I've been to the Cleveland Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I really enjoyed my tour there, but this is apples and oranges. This is totally different. Yeah. This is touchable and um, playable. And it's also not only the records, the rest of the rooms are rooms for the Rolling Stones. There's a Rolling Stones room, a room for Elvis, a room, uh, three rooms for the Beatles, actually. Wow. <laughs> uh, because I built a Hollywood Bowl under my house, a little Hollywood Bowl, <laughs> which is the first place. Um, it's actually the third concert they ever did in America, but it was the most famous one. Yeah, you have a cool that. business card that has that, too, which I'm yeah. a proud owner. I love that. They're like a ticket from that event, but it's right. great. <laughs> well, when people come over, they go into this little Hollywood Bowl big enough for four people. Wow. And when Capitol Records found out that I did this, they gave me the only copy in the world of that first show that they were going to sell on CD or on DVD, but they, they decided against it, and so I got the only copy that there is. You are listening to Steve Resnick, the owner of the incredible West Coast Rock and Roll Museum. We'll have more in a moment, but first want to talk a little about our great sponsor, the Neon Museum in Las Vegas. Okay, first of all, it's a must-stop. You can't miss it. It's a great attraction here in Las Vegas, a world-class museum. And they've got something going on that I want to talk about for a few minutes called Brilliant. It's a new show. It's a 360-degree audio-visual immersion experience that uses dance technology to reanimate some monumental examples of the Neon Museum's iconic signs. It's all about the signs of Las Vegas and so forth. It's incredible to see. The music is great. The history is great. You don't want to miss it. It's the Neon Museum, and the show is called Brilliant. For more information, you got to go to their website. It's neonmuseum.org, just like it sounds. Tickets are $23.00. Well worth every penny, and it's 30 minutes Wednesday through Sunday, right at sunset. We're chatting with Steve Resnick, longtime music executive and collector of pop songs. What's great, yeah, and I mean, it, it, what's great about it is, too, you really get that feel of the screaming and so forth, which, you know, doesn't happen anymore. It just was incre- an incredible thing that if you weren't there, it's a lost, it's a lost experience. That's very true. Wow. And I wasn't there. I, I wasn't there. I was a little kid in junior high at the time, and I was the kid in school that everybody came to every Friday saying, Steve, the party tomorrow night, um, you're in charge of what records we play at the party. All the, all the girls will give you their records, their 45s, and you have to decide which ones we play. <laughs> I, w- I was also the guy that told the kids, hey, this is the radio station you listen to. Don't listen to this station. Listen to this station. So one day, about five kids came to me at recess and said, Steve, Steve, that new group, the Beatles, they're going to be at the Hollywood Bowl. Should we go? And I said, absolutely not. 
Oh, God, no. <laughs> and so now, 45 years later, I've got a list of all the mistakes. I've, I've, I've had a really great career in the music business and been vice president at several record labels and worked with many, many artists, some you mentioned earlier. And I've got a list of all my mistakes. Well, that's right there at the very top. Obviously, the Beatles are up there and the Rolling Stones. Let's talk, though, about having done this for all these years and seeing everything. What are your what are your all time favorites? I mean, you know, like your three or four. You know, if if you if you could take three or four with you to the next to the next life, what would you take? Well, when that question comes up, I ask people, and you can and everyone listen. You can ask your friends the same question when it comes to this kind of a question. I say. Remember Tom Hanks in that movie when the FedEx plane crashed and he was in the ocean and he got to that island and he had to spend several years there? Well, he didn't have a sound system. But what if he had had a sound system and, he's, and he was given only one record to listen to for those six or seven years? What record could you not get tired of? Well, I've got a few. When it comes to, to singles, I tell people I can never get sick of Louie Louie yeah. or Sounds of Silence or um, several Beach Boys records, um, You've Lost That Love and Feeling by the Righteous Brothers, or a couple of the Ronettes records. I mean, I could go on, but the, those are the ones that come to mind. Yeah. Um, 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians, you know, almost a one hit, only a one-hit wonder pretty much, but I can't, I can't get tired yeah. of that record. I can listen to it over and over. Runaway by Del Shannon, I can't get tired of. And if somebody said to me, well, you can only have one album, to listen to on that island, what would it be? And I would narrow it down to Breakfast in America. Oh, my God, I can picture that cover right as you say it. Yeah. yeah. I could listen to that forever and, and never get tired of it. Um, I love Bob Seger. Um, I love the Moody Blues. So there's a handful of artists. Yeah, how about the Bob Seger's first live album? I, I have played that. I, I had to buy it a couple times because I just loved it so much, you know. Oh, right. Man. Great and stuff. then, of course, there's Motown. I cannot get tired of Diana Ross, Four Tops, Temptations, Stevie Wonder. Um, I can just listen to those artists uh, day and night. Day and in fact, when I mentioned the names of the people that have been over to see the collection, I became fairly good friends with Marvin Gaye. Mm -hmm. And he came over and saw the collection a handful of times. And we played sports together. Um, I also forgot to mention that Will Chamberlain was a good friend of mine, and I don't mean to drop names, but you asked me, so. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he used to come over and listen to music with me, and, and um, he was just a marvelous, marvelous man, and uh, he loved all the R&B from 55 to 62, like Clarence Frogman Henry and uh, Ray Charles and Etta oh, James yeah. and Slim Harpo and uh, Sam Cooke and uh, Jackie a, Wilson. He was a really played. smart guy, right? Kind of a renaissance guy, as I recall, you know. Very, very smart. And listening to him speak was, was terrific. He yeah. was wonderful. Real good guy. Now, I've been dying to ask you this question. This is my favorite thought, and I thought, well, I better not start with it. The worst songs, because everybody knows that on that Billboard 100 did not necessarily mean it was a great song, right? Any that particularly mm -hmm. stand out to you is really bad. Well, my favorite bad song, and it's not a horrible song, but I just can't believe it went to number one, and I can't really believe it was even a hit, was Candyman by <laughs> Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. For, for some reason, I just, and I love Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, as an as a artist, as an actor, a, a talk show guy. What, you know, he was fantastic, and I met him once. Um, it was funny, I was with Tom Noonan, who was the chart manager of Billboard. We were at a restaurant, and he goes, look at that, there's Sammy Davis Jr. in there. And we walked over and said hi to him. Tom had already met him a few times. I never did. We met him, and we walked over, and he's crying. Really? 
Yeah. And Tom said, well, I don't know if you remember me, Tom Noonan from Billboard. He says, yeah, I remember you. He kept on crying. He kept on crying. And Tom said, well, what's wrong? What's wrong? He said, I just got a phone call that my band leader, and I can't remember who it was, like Benny Goodman or one of those famous band leaders that he yeah. played with a million years ago, just passed away. And I, I'm having trouble with that. So I'll never forget that. Um, so what you know, about some of the Don Kirshner stuff? Because some of it actually is good. And I've learned to appreciate it as the years have gone on. Well, here's one thing that I say to people, if I'm some kind of a professor about rock and roll or pop music, when people say, well, what bad records made it to the top? What good records weren't hits? The answer to the question is the Candyman, even though I didn't like it. And a lot of people I talk to say, oh, I can't believe that was the number one record. It was a great record. It was a hit record. It was a great record. And why do I say it was a great record? Because it sold two million copies. And if two million people liked it, then who am I to say it's not a good record? Yeah, yeah, I know. That's all. The stuff is really subjective in that regard. It exactly. really is, you know. There are records that I love that I thought should have been much, much bigger hits. A couple of them by Gene Pitney that I thought were yeah. so fantastic that it, you know, the first time Solitary Man came out by Neil Diamond, his first record. Yeah. It peaked at fifty-one. Wow. It was not a hit record. Now they re-released it when he was big, about five years later, and you know, and again, it only went top. 25 or so, it still wasn't a top 10 record. Well, who would play Solitary Man and not say, man, what a great, great record. That had to be a top five or even a number one record. Well, it wasn't. You, you have to say the definition of it is it wasn't a smash. Yeah. In my mind, it was a, a number one record, but, but it, it, it's up to the people. I, I remember when I first got my first job at ABC Records, and I was working Jimmy Buffett, who, who couldn't get a hit. I remember his manager came around after we had the song Come, uh, Come Monday which I thought was a great, great record. And we got it played and, and peaked at 30. It wasn't a hit record. And when I saw, I was just a young kid, but I was talking to his manager and I, and I did barely knew him. And I felt embarrassed that we didn't bring the record home. And I said to him, and I shouldn't have even said it the way I said it, but I said, I'm so sorry we didn't bring Jimmy Buffett's record you know, to the top 10. And he said, look, Steve, it's not up to you. It's not up to the record company. When you start at the beginning, an artist makes a record. And it's not up to the artist to say whether it's a hit or not. The artist gives it to the record company. The record company, in marketing and promotion and publicity, it's not up to them to say if the record was a hit or not. They give it to radio. The radio station plays it or not, doesn't play it. But whether they do or not, it's not up to them to say whether it's a hit or not. But once they play it and the audience decides, it's up to, to the audience. It's up to the public. Yeah, and yeah. that was something that I never had thought about before that. Well, it's true. And also, and Jimmy Buffy's a, a great example of this where you can start out, and I remember that song, and I, I remember that playing Come Monday. I thought it was a good song. And who would have ever thought, though, that now, I mean, you know, this guy, he's got almost a cult-like following. You know, there's people that love his music, will listen to it all the time. He can put out almost anything. Isn't that sort of a thing where you kind of have to grow with an artist, and they, you know, and then you go back, and then suddenly the old stuff sounds really good that you might have missed? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I made a, a CD of my favorite Jimmy Buffett songs, most of which were album cuts on the first two albums and a, a song or two from the third album. And I thought they were some of the best songs. I thought every one of them could have been singles. And everybody that I play it for, I'll send you a copy, everybody I play it for says almost every one of those songs should have been a hit single. And then you must have seen, too, some of these genre changes, because I'm thinking, just off the top of my head, Kenny Rogers had that, you know, what condition my condition was. People I play that for sometimes can't believe that that's the same guy who did all those uh, country songs later on in his career. Correct. Now, I've seen that happen many, many times. 
you know, there's there's just periods of time where music changes. Uh, every two, three years, you know, there's something. When, you know, I, when hip-hop started in the, in the early 90s, I remember a couple people asking me. I was speaking at a class at UCLA, and I said, like it or don't like it, it's not going to last more than a couple years. Well, I think I kind of messed up on that one. <laughs> yeah, who knew, right? But uh, Yeah, so, yeah. you know, and a lot of times good records will fall through the cracks because radio stations have too many ballads, and they can't play yet another ballad. Uh, yeah. There's there's so many reasons why radio stations play the records they play. And then there's groups like Procol Harum. I remember the old you know whiter shade of pale. And you look at what was being played at the time, and that almost seemed out of place. And yet that's kind of an anthem. It, it managed to go on. It's still played. Exactly. Music like that, like ELO and all those big full sounds uh, that were done with big orchestras, early BGs, uh, were some of my favorites of all time. Yeah, great stuff. Great. Hey, you know. I want to talk a little about this is so interesting to me it's not just the records though you also have memorabilia there talk a little about what if we were lucky enough to take that trip with you what kind of memorabilia will we see so i was in college radio in the late 60s and as i went to all the record companies here in la and all the record company distributors that were here about eight or nine of them they had all this memorabilia which they still have today, but it's only 1% of what it used to be. They used to make pins and buttons and hats and yo-yos and pads of paper with artist's name on it, like Whitney Houston or whoever. And then they'd even make T-shirts and hats. And every week I would be getting boxes and boxes of this stuff as I went to these companies. And I just collected it over the years and kept it in my dad's garage until I got this house that I explained earlier. And now that I've got this big house, I've got these ten or 12,000 items uh, of of memorabilia all over the house in different places, and it's all organized in a special way. For example, I have one wall downstairs in one of the basements. It's about well, it's forty feet long. It's the length of the of the, of the entire wall, and I have pins, about six or seven thousand buttons and pins that have been made for artists, the Bruce Springsteens and and the Jay Giles and whoever. And every, almost every artist that throughout the first 40 years of rock and roll had a pin or button, and many of them have six or eight or ten of them. And I alphabetize them on this one wall. So if somebody says, hey, do you have anything by uh, Guns N' Roses? You, you go over to G and you look, and boom, there's three of them. You know. Wow. <laughs> and some of them are just worth two cents. They're no big deal, but they're part of a collection. And some of them are, are beautiful metal that, you, that when, when I wear. I, I wear a different pin every single day when I go places. So I'm always wearing a different one. I wore in excess last night when I went somewhere. And some of them are really beautiful metal pins that did cost some money to make. And some of them are cheap, nothing pins uh, for the Go-Go's that they just made at the last minute just to send out, you know. And all these pieces of memorabilia went to radio stations. And when people say, well, did that, did that really make a difference in a record getting played? Well, the thing is, if, a, if you sent out a, a piece of memorabilia on a, on a song that was terrible, it wouldn't make any difference. If you sent out a piece of memorabilia on Michael Jackson, who's going to get played anyway, it didn't make any difference. It was just something added that they wanted to send out. But every now and then, when you have something that a radio station says, well, maybe I'll play it, maybe I won't, I don't know if I have room, I don't know, I don't know, maybe that extra little piece of something, um, you know, a little paperweight, uh, made a difference. You never know. It's all subconscious. Yeah. Um, but another thing that I collect is um, tour jackets. Mm. I've got uh, on one wall tour jackets for... Um, MC Hammer, ELO, um, Tim McGraw, Bob Seeger, Jay Giles, uh, ACDC, and 38 Special. And these are, in the, in the old days, well, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, these major groups 
would make eight or ten of these tour jackets and give them to the guys that worked on the sets, on the stage, uh, or uh, maybe made a couple extras and give them to a, a radio station that first played the record. And so I've collected these. Some were from the artists that I worked with, like Police and like Brian Adams and like Janet Jackson, and some were from other record companies where they kept them in their garage getting dusty and they couldn't throw them away because they were beautiful, but they'd give them to me saying, well, I'll never wear it again, so here, you know. Yeah, it's not the kind of stuff you go buy in the gift shop or, uh, either. You know, this is like you say, when you're talking about one of these things and only eight or ten of them exist, it's a big deal. Right. Well, 99% of all the memorabilia that I have here is is stuff that you could never buy in Hollywood Boulevard, never buy in Times Square, because they were only made to give to radio stations as a gift. And they only made 50 or 60 or 70 copies, sometimes 100. So I got a pillow by Steppenwolf that they only made 10 of, for example. Um, I was lucky enough as a young kid to meet Jim Morrison, who gave me a keychain. And to this day, I don't know whether or not there were 10 of them made just for the group or whether they made 1,000. I have no idea. I never saw one at Electric Records, so I'm thinking they only made a couple. Um, I've got a Led Zeppelin inflatable balloon I've been offered thousands and thousands of dollars oh. for because they only made 50, and they don't only believe there's one or two left in existence. Uh, it'll never be made again, and you know somebody could go and make a duplicate, I suppose, but it would cost more than it's worth. You know, I suppose if you, I suppose if you could sell it for thirty thousand, you'd do it. But by the next um, time we have you on, Steve, I'm going to bring on our buddy Brett Maley, who does our art stuff and can estimate. I I imagine this stuff is um, just a couple of those items. You know, that stuff's worth a ton of money. I mean, the Jim Morrison thing. There are people all over the world that would want to bid on something like that. These things are. are you know, I only have a handful of those because, again, the majority of the collectible things I have aren't worth all that much. But when you put it all together into one yeah. group, I've been offered millions of dollars for the whole collection, you know, and it's not something I want to ever sell. Right. I don't blame you. Well, you, you know, know, I have a bunch of stuff I want to ask you about the business. We'll do that the next time. We've got to have you on again. But in the meantime, people are hearing about this. Where can they go? And I know there's one place, but tell them where they can go that they can at least see a little of this and get kind of a feel of what's uh, out there. Well, and well, as far as I'm concerned, for me, Entertainment Tonight did a show, six and a half minute piece on me a couple of years ago, and it's on YouTube. Uh, and there's a handful of things on YouTube if someone types my name, but that one is a, a, kind of the best one out there. If they, if they go to YouTube and type Steve Resnick, and Resnick is R-E-S-N-I-K, no C in it, R-E-S-N-I-K, you'll see a handful of things, but usually the top one will say West Coast Rock and Roll Museum, and there's a girl in it, and she's interviewing me, but, so you can see a picture of the girl. A still picture, and then you click that, and you'll see the six and a half minute show, and hopefully you'll like it. Oh, I've seen it; it's great, Steve. Thank you so much again. We would love to have you on again to talk more music. That was a lot of fun. My pleasure. Talk to you real soon. You've been listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast with new shows loaded twice weekly. Got a guest idea? Email us at info at VegasNeverSleeps.com and catch the show live every Sunday, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, coast to coast on the BizTalk Radio Network.